0: Would y'all thank the band with me one time real quick? What a great job. Also, we want to welcome into our service Lake Hills Church downtown meeting at Brazos Hall. It's cool to get to be a part of that down there. I want to ask you a question to begin this morning. How many of you can remember, and I mean really remember, your first kiss? Let me just see a show of hands. If you remember your first kiss, some of you are thinking, well, I'm sitting next to my wife, it wasn't her, I'm not raising my." That's all right. You just save the best for the last. That's okay. You know, that, that first kiss is really, truly, that's an iconic moment. And, and it kind of gets put on a list, doesn't it? There's, there's the first kiss, or maybe there's the, the moment that you got engaged, your wedding day, maybe your wedding night, perhaps even the, the first time you saw a child born into the world. I think another iconic moment that gets put on this same list May sound a little strange, but if you think about it, it's true. Maybe at a funeral of a really, really close loved one who has passed away, and as you grieve their loss, you also celebrate the love that you had for that person. Now, this list can go on and on and on, and these are those iconic moments that that crazy little thing called love kind of wells up within us, and it's the emotion, and it's the power, and it's those are the things that we think of when we first think. Of love but it is those things exactly that actually are the driver behind this series of messages that we've been in for the last few weeks called tough love because the fact of the matter is that those moments as iconic as they are as powerful as they can be they are when it's all said and done just that they are only moments and it's against the backdrop of backdrop of those moments that you and I kind of have to hang with that 24-7, 365 days a year need. That, that kind of soul-searing need, that gut-level need that we have to love and to be loved, to know and to be known, to trust and to be trusted. It's in those moments between the big moments that... Real love is tempered, that real love actually gets toughened to last and to sustain between the mountaintop experience moments. And today we're going to kind of turn the corner a little bit on this series because what we're going to look at today is the fact that love is a miracle. By any definition, you may be kind of a scientific, empirical type, but I think you would even have to admit that love defies scientific explanation you you can't get to a formula or an empirical kind of a formula for what love really is or where it comes from but neither can you deny the reality of love neither can you deny the fact that we need this thing called love so it's supernatural it is absolutely a miracle And I want to invite you to take out your program that you got when you came in today. It looks a little something like this. It says Tough Love on the cover. And I want to invite you to take notes as we go through this because what we're talking about today transcends a church service. It will extend far beyond what happens in the next three hours that we're together in this room. I'm just kidding. I just want to see if you're paying attention. Some of you are visiting and you're like, what? I'm just kidding. But, I'm serious as I can be about the miraculous nature of love. About what this thing really and truly is. And specifically, where it comes from. You see, the miracle of love is serving. The miracle of real love is found in people choosing to serve each other now obviously this is true in marriage i say obviously but you kind of understand intuitively but it also transcends marriage it's true from parent to child child to parent how many of you in the room right now are let's say under the age of 20 but you live at home let me just see a show of hands if you are still kind of living on mom and dad's generosity okay okay Listen, and I know sometimes, I, I listen, I get where you're coming from. I know sometimes you have thought to yourselves, if God is truly a loving God, how did he give me these parents? You thought that. I, know, I understand that. And just for the record, your parents have had similar thoughts on the other side of that equation. But that's a whole other sermon. But I want you to think about, students, what would your household look like? What would the culture of your home look like if today... When you got home from church and after lubies, if you went to your mom and you said, Mom, what can I do to help you today? Parents, don't say anything. I'm trying to help you out. Don't torpedo this thing before we even get it going. If you went to your dad and said, Dad, is there anything I can help you with? Because, I, man, I'm grateful for the fact you let me live here. First of all, the the most fun part of this whole thing is going to be picking them up off the floor. That's going to be, you're just going to be like, man, look what I just did to Dad. He's having a heart attack. It's unbelievable. But I want you to really and truly consider, students, what the culture of your home would look like if you adopted that mindset. If you approached your parents from a position not of you owe me or I'm entitled to, but rather I'm going to serve you. How many of you are husbands? Let me see a show of hands. The men in the house. All right. Husbands, can you just even imagine what your wives would do over the next seven days if you just said, "No, wives, I'm telling you, shh, no elbows, no amens. Just, Just let me talk to the guys for a second. If you said to your wives and followed up with actual action, how can I help you. Can I, can I help you with the kids? I think I smell a diaper. I've got it. Or, hey, I tell you what, tonight I will take care of making sure the family gets fed. No dishes for you. No prep. I'll bring it home. I, I'm, I'm bringing home the bacon and I'm frying it up in the pan. I'm your man. What? Now, I I challenge you guys to do that for the next seven days, but I also want to challenge you, if you do that for the next seven days, think about the next seven nights. Somebody help me preach. (laughs) I'm just saying. I'm just saying. Have you ever noticed, if somebody says they're just saying, they're not? You know, I'm just saying. No, you're not. (laughs) Thanks, honey. But the real miracle of love is found in service, in serving other people. And by the way, that's the real power of love. It is when you set aside your wants, needs, and desires to meet the wants, needs, and desires of another person. And in God's genius, he does something so phenomenal there's this cosmic transaction that occurs when we serve other people when we set aside our wants needs and desires and they set aside their wants needs and desires god supernaturally miraculously meets our wants needs and desires think about somebody that you know who is joyful just bring somebody to mind that you know who enjoys life now I I don't know who you have in the frontal lobe of your brain, but I can tell you this, that's somebody who serves at least somewhere in his or her life. That is somebody who is constantly thinking about pouring into the lives of other people. In the book of Philippians, God gives us a roadmap. He, He shows us a pattern to follow in order to love with this serving love. Now, the book of Philippians was written by the apostle Paul. Paul is inspired by God's Holy Spirit to write this letter to a church that he had helped to found in the city of Philippi. And scholars are fairly united around the fact that Paul wrote this letter to the Philippians while he was in prison. And they're they're also fairly certain that Paul had a deep, deep affection. There, There was a very real affinity for the church at Philippi. If you read Paul's letters to 1 and 2 Corinthians... To the church at Corinth there's a lot of correcting going on Paul Paul loves the church at Corinth but there's a lot of correcting that needs to go on they've got you know prostitution happening as a portion of their worship services Paul's kind of like nah, I don't think that's what we had in mind when we started the church there but in Philippi Paul has this deep abiding affection look with me at Philippians chapter number two if you've got your phone with you hopefully you've got that UVersion app that we've talked about on your smartphone Or you brought a Bible with you. But in Philippians chapter number 2, Paul begins to expound and expand on this idea of the miracle of serving love. Verse 1, he says, Now therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if you have any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete. Say complete. Complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Paul's saying, listen, if you have a relationship with Christ, if you are a Christian, you are a Christ follower, then your life needs to be different. Your life needs to show it. I'm not talking about just somebody who goes to church. That's cool if you've just kind of shown up for the first time in years or ever. But Paul is speaking here to those who have truly given their lives to following Jesus. That's what it means to be a Christian. I I hope you, you know that being a Christian doesn't mean that you go to church or that you were born in America. But it means that you follow Christ. You've committed your life to him imperfectly but you've committed it you've committed your life to following jesus and paul says if your life is that kind of a life if you've got any any fellowship with jesus whatsoever then i want you to make my joy complete and be like-minded be of be of one heart and what paul's saying here is that the real joy of serving love is unity the real joy of of serving love is unity. That's, that's the real payoff of serving love, not fun or pleasure or fulfillment or companionship or friendship. Th- those things many times are a part of love, but that's not the payday. But how many times do we kind of think that is the ultimate payoff, especially when we're younger? As, as our ideas of love kind of come into focus, come into view, we, we kind of think about, you know, what's in it for us? And there's, there's nothing wrong with that as long as we don't stay there, you know, because our, our view of love begins very, very early. Think about an infant. An infant knows when he or she is loved by when his or her needs are met, right? Infants just kind of cry because they're dirty, Man. They need to eat. Wham. They need to go outside. Wham. They need to be in the jumpy seat. Wham. It's all about me as an infant. And our job as parents is to lovingly and consistently disabuse our children of this notion from the pit of hell that they are the center of the universe. That, that's our job. That's, that's why we're here. And it's something that we all fight our entire lives, but as we grow up, We kind of, you know, there's a day in which, you know, remember cooties? How many of y'all remember cooties? I'm gonna sitting next to a girl. got cooties. Ugh. Well, that's okay because you had B.O. So, (laughs) it worked out great in fourth grade and fifth grade. When boys' hormones kind of first start to kick in, but they haven't bought deodorant yet. You know what I'm talking about? It's nasty. (laughs) But all of a sudden, something happens. I don't know. Different ages, different guys, eighth grade, ninth grade. 30 years old, whatever the case might be. And they start to go, whoa, that's a girl. And and they start to kind of think, oh, that's a girl. And the attraction begins to grow. and, And again, in our very immature version of love, we start to think, I want that. And we ask our parents, how do you know when you're in love? And of course, our moms told us the truest worst answer in the world right you'll just you'll just know thanks mom <laughs> but she was right you, you you just you just know but it's real love it's mature love that serves it's mature love that finds unity together that's where love that transcends just marriage it can be amongst friends I've got some very, very close guys in my life, men that I rely on, men that I lean on. And most of them, you know how I found out that we were really close friends? When we're hanging out together, we don't have to talk. That's just kind of how guys operate. I'm like, I don't have to entertain him. He doesn't have to entertain me. I like that dude. But they're also the ones that have carte blanche in my life to ask me anything at any time. They're the ones who hold my feet to the fire spiritually. They're the ones who challenge me personally make sure that I'm being a good husband to Julie or a good father to Emily and to Joseph. They're the ones who go, Mac, what are you doing? You can do better. You can be better. But those guys are the ones that I know have my back. They're the ones that when we go through a challenge or a setback, they're the ones who text me and go, hey, I love you. Keep fighting. I got your back. Hey, don't quit. We're right here with you. Those are the guys I rely on. And the real blessing, the real joy of the love that we share in a very God-honoring, masculine kind of a way is the unity we feel. We're we're together as brothers. We're, We're bonded together. Those are the guys I know I can count on. Those are the guys I can call and go, man, I need you to pray for me. Every relationship you have, the real payoff, the real blessing is unity. To be sure from time to time, there's going to be fun. There will be pleasure. There will be fulfillment. There will be companionship. Those things are great as far as they go. But the ultimate blessing is this unity that God talks about through the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 2. He says it's ultimately all about unity, being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit And of one mind. Verse 3. Just so you know, too, this is a little moment of pastoral transparency. I tried to find a version that did not have verses 3 and 4. Verses 3 and 4 are highly inconvenient. So you just need to know that on the going inside. Check this out. Do nothing, say nothing. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Hmm. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interest of others. Golly. Is that, is that hard for anybody else in the room? Am I the only one who has the guts to admit it? No, I'm kidding. Is, that is hard work. But here's what Paul's getting at. When we serve one another like this, when we love each other with this serving love, serving love eliminates relational toxins. Serving love eliminates relational toxins. How many of you know that our relationships are subject to being poisoned? From time to time, the the strongest relationships in the world can become infected with relational toxins. Toxins like selfishness. Selfishness. I've mean, I, I, I never had to take a class in being selfish. I, as a matter of fact, to be totally candid with you, I'm great at it. I mean, I, I have a PhD in selfish capacity. It doesn't, it doesn't take me long at all to start worrying about me myself and I there's the relational toxin of entitlements we 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 kind of come to feel entitled to certain (laughs) relational payoffs don't we and and they take a lot of different forms but they're there also when you choose to serve the people you love you do away with scorecards you know that scorecards are relationally toxic don't you How many of you have ever thought this? Don't raise your hands. If you want to, that's fine. I'm not going to apologize first this time. I apologized first the last time. Okay, go ahead, raise your hand. Who's thought that? I have. I have. I've been like, I mean, how many times do I have to initiate forgiveness? That's a scorecard. That's not serving. Serving love eliminates scorecards. And, and then there's one last relational toxin that I just I want to mention to you and just kind of visit with you about because I think it is so prevalent and so dangerous. Serving love eliminates the toxin of lust. Can we just admit and own the fact that lust is a relationship? toxin it is poisonous do not buy the lie from the pit of hell that lust is a victimless crime boys will be boys it's just a girl's night out (laughs) it's just you know it's just Vegas I had to go for business honey put food on the table no you were looking at another woman with lust in your heart now I think we could also admit that this probably is a bigger challenge for men than it is for women, though women are not immune to it, nor should they get smug at this point in the sermon. I mean, Men are visual creatures. That's kind of how we're oriented. If you take, take the lust thing aside for just a second, think about movies that guys like. Fire. I mean, we, we, like, we like visual stuff. But lust is a poison to your soul. Lust is a poison to your relationship. And I want to just point out the fact, too, that lust is exactly like drugs or alcohol addiction. What gives you that pornographic buzz, that little titillation and excitement today, in order to reach the same level of excitement tomorrow will require just a little bit more. And then the day after that, a little bit more. It is the law of diminishing returns, and it will eat your soul away. So, here's the deal. Get that crap out of your life. Have a zero tolerance for pornography of any kind. It's just Sports Illustrated. No, not one time a year it's not. When you see bathing suits on there, you're not thinking Super Bowl. That stuff will rot away your relationships. You know why? Because lust is easy. Lust is cowardice, played out sexually. Lust requires nothing from you. You don't have to give anything. You just have to have eyeballs. Way to go. But If you're engaged in a real relationship, if you're engaged sexually in marriage, one man, one woman, one life, you know what? To find sexual fulfillment in that context, you're going to have to give something. You're going to have to actually pay attention to your spouse. That was funny. You should laugh at that point. (laughs) Let that nervous laughter out a little bit. Some of you right now are thinking, I wish he'd go back to talking about the tithe. (laughs) And wives, I know, some of you are like grossed out by the concept. You're like, no, not my husband. Yes, your husband is susceptible, is vulnerable. Talk about it. Check each other's computers. Look at the history. Don't delete anything. Set up safeguards. Give yourselves that protection. To eliminate that relational toxin, lust serves only the self. It's not about any other person, it's not about any other relationship. As a matter of fact, God has given us our sexual drive. That's a gift from God. As a matter of fact, we're gonna talk about that next weekend. Some of you, we're here, just so you know, we're coming. But we're, the Bible talks about sex openly and directly. But for every gift of God Satan has a counterfeit has something to offer us that is less than and never delivers what it promises but when we serve one another when we serve another person then we see the supernatural miraculous working of God Paul goes on in Philippians chapter 2 Verse 5, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. The model of serving love is Jesus. The model, the the example for us to follow is Jesus. Now, here in Philippians 2, verse 5 and following, there is about a semester and a half of seminary packed into what Paul writes but just for our sake today I don't want you to miss the fact that Jesus who being in very nature God and amen Jesus being in very nature God he is divine he is God in the flesh Jesus, who is the Alpha and the Omega, the Lion of Judah, the King of Kings, and the Lord of Lords. Jesus serves. Jesus, seated at the right hand of God the Father. Jesus serves. He serves. Jesus, who left the right hand of the Father left his rightful place in heaven to become one of us, to walk on this earth and to be with us physically for 33 years. Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus got on his knees and washed feet. Not coincidentally, the day after he got on his knees, he got up on a cross. And he went to the cross willingly. He went to the cross as a servant for you by name. The Bible tells us that God knew you like he knew me before we were ever formed in our mother's womb knew your name and Jesus went to the cross for you as a servant so that you could be reconciled back into this relationship with God that you were created for it amazes me when some people Ascribe to Jesus kind of soft characteristics. He's he's a sweet God. He's light and love. Those things are true. But by themselves, they ignore the brutality of the cross, and they ignore the power of the resurrection. The fact of the empty tomb that Jesus got up from the dead and he rose again so that whoever believes in him would never die but would have eternal life. That's tough love, that's personal relationship. That's not just believing in God, that's not just going to church. That's engaging with Him. Fellowship with Him. Relationship with Him. Submission to Him. And that's what He invites you to. You see, Jesus validates His love by serving. And he calls us to do the same thing. If you ever wonder, I mean, how much does God love me? Did Jesus really love me? The cross answers that question. Jesus' servant heart validates his love. If you're here today and you've never stepped into that relationship definitively, And I mean personally. I'm not talking about going to church. I'm talking about personally owning and appropriating Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection and giving your life to him. In just a moment, we want to give you the opportunity to do that. It doesn't take a huge ceremony. It takes a willing heart, willing to give your heart, your life, to him in response to the life he gave for you. I want to ask you, if you will, bow your heads for just a moment. And in this moment, I want to invite everyone to be praying. If you have given your life to Christ, then you be praying. If you have not, then we want to invite you to step into that relationship just right now by praying a prayer of commitment, a prayer of submission, just right where you're sitting, silently talk to God, silently just say to him, Jesus, I need you. I accept your serving love into my life. I commit my life to you. Jesus I confess my sin to you. I claim your forgiveness. I choose to believe that you died on the cross for me by name and that you rose again. I give you my life from this moment forward forever. I want to ask you just to remain with your heads bowed and your eyes closed. Because this is a sacred ground moment. But if that was your prayer and you meant it for the first time anywhere. with heads bowed and eyes closed, I want to ask you if you would just quietly, but definitively, raise your hand. Just raise your hand and hold it up high over your head for a moment. And as you hold your hand up, I want you to know why. Because this moment needs to be marked in your life. It's the most important moment you'll ever know. And as you hold your hands up, I wanna make sure that you understand there will come another moment. Probably not today, but at some point there will be something in your mind that causes you to say, was that real? Did, Did God really do that? And this is your opportunity to know that this is real, to mark this moment in your life, in your soul. For us as a church family, There's nothing more important, nothing more significant to us than this moment in your life. That's why as you put your hands down, our family tradition around here is to put our hands together and to tell you, welcome home. We want to tell you, welcome home.